Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2020 Dublin Festival of History, Professor of Law and Barrister Philippe Sands talks about his book, The Ratline, Love, Lies and Justice on the Trail of a Nazi Fugitive. The moderator is historian and friend of the festival, Professor Robert Gerworth. This event was presented in cooperation with the Holocaust Education Trust of Ireland and was recorded via Zoom on the 4th of October 2021. I'd like to acknowledge before I start the conversation with uh, Philip, which I'm really looking forward to, uh, the support of the Holocaust Education Trust Ireland. Uh, as you mentioned, I think this is a great uh, joint venture. Um, finally, uh, last but not least, I'd like to uh, thank Philip for making the time to speak to us this evening. It's fantastic to have you uh, here at the Dublin uh, History Festival. Um, many of you will, of course, uh, know Philippe's former work, in particular the uh, wonderful uh, East-West Street, which uh, is really um, a brilliant uh, book on the origins of, of genocide as well as uh, the concept of crimes against humanity. And in many ways, the, the new book, which will be the main focus of our conversation uh, this evening, which is The Red Line, uh, is very closely connected uh, to that book. In some ways, one could say it's the sequel to uh, East-West Street in the sense that it takes one of its, um, not not one of the protagonists, but one of the lesser characters in East-West Street and puts him uh, at the very centre of your narrative. Um, and I'd love to talk to you in greater detail about this. I'd like to find out uh, how you found the subject uh, or how it found you and uh, what got you interested in the subject matter in the first place. So, uh, as you say, uh, say it so well in the prologue to uh, the red line, um, let's go back to the beginning. Thank you very much, Robert, and thank you, Dublin and the History Festival and the Holocaust Education Trust. I think, as I mentioned when I got this invitation, I am yet to turn down an invitation uh, to talk about any books uh, anywhere in Ireland, because it is the greatest place on planet Earth to talk about writing and ideas and these kinds of things. It's incredibly nice to be in Dublin virtually. I mean, as you know, Robert, uh, and it's wonderful to be here with you. I've read much of your work, and this is our first conversation of this kind. But as you know, it began all of this with this curious invitation I got from a university in an obscure Ukrainian city, Lviv, uh, to come and give a lecture on the cases that I do on crimes against humanity and genocide. That was now exactly 10 years ago this week, um, remarkably. And I went off with my mom and my aunt and my son, who was then 15 and a historian now, he works for the BBC, uh, because my grandfather had been born in that city and it was called Lemberg. And one thing led to another. I wanted to find out who my grandfather's was, what life he had, and I came across these two lawyers but I, Lauter Pact and Lemkin, who invented the concepts of genocide and crimes against humanity. But then another man came into the story, Hans Frank, who had arrived in the city on the 1st of August 1942 uh, and given a series of speeches in which he effectively announced the implementation of the final solution in District Galicia. And one of the people in the audience was his deputy on the 1st of August 1942, Otto Wächter, who was the governor of District Galicia, based in Lemberg. So as I would prepare a case, I read myself in, I found everything I could that had been written about Hans Frank, and I came across a book written by his son Nicholas uh, called Der Vater, The Father, which was a remarkable book, a very painful book to read about a son's dealing with the legacy of a father who is hanged at Nuremberg for the murder of four million human beings. And I thought, I want to meet this man. I got in touch with him. One thing led to another. Uh, the first time I met him, he surprised me. He said to me, Philippe, you need to understand, I'm against the death penalty in all cases, except in the case of my father, uh, which, you know, uh, was a curious way for a sort of person living in London to begin a conversation um, but we've become close friends. And at a certain point, this was now about nine years ago, Nicholas said, you know, you're interested in um, Galicia and Lemberg. Would you be interested in meeting the son of my father's deputy? The deputy was Otto Wächter. He had six children. One of them is Horst. And Horst is my friend, said Nicholas. I said, sure. Uh, 
but I'm not sure why he would want to meet me, but I'm up for it. And three months later, we found ourselves in a tiny little village, a little north of um, Vienna, Hagenburg, uh, entering a 15th century, tumble-down, impecunious, remarkable castle in which Horst and his wife basically lived in two rooms out of 100, completely poor. And he welcomed me. And uh, that first day I spent with him going through family albums of photographs of mum and dad, Otto and Charlotte. Um, And one thing led to another. I wrote a profile for the Financial Times of Horst. He didn't like it. He broke relations, but six weeks later came back. The article became a documentary film, uh, My Nazi Legacy, What Our Fathers Did. Horst sent me a rather sweet note saying, it's got the wrong title. It should be called What Our Fathers Did and Did Not Do. He didn't like that film either. Uh, Broke relations, but six weeks later came back. In the course of the film, Nicholas Nicholas expressed the view that perhaps Horst was a bit of a Nazi, which I don't think he is. Uh, Horst, Nicholas has in fact retracted that view, but it was in the film. And Horst said, how do I prove I'm not a Nazi? Which is a sort of interesting question to be asked. And I thought about it and said, well, you've got this huge archive of your mum and dad's letters, diaries, papers, thousands of pages. I haven't seen most of it. You've shown me bits and bobs, but why don't you give that to a museum? Nazis don't give their parents, their Nazi parents' papers to Uh, research institutions so that people like me and other scholars and researchers and the public can look at them and form their own view. He said, terrific idea. Which museum? I pointed him to to a friend of mine, an Austrian archivist, Anatol Steck, in the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. They digitized the entire thing, made it all publicly available, but with difficulty. And Horst said, would you like a copy, Philippe? And that's how the Ratline story begins. Well, and uh, I think what you just mentioned about the, this treasure trove of, um, of sources that uh, you were given access to um, reveals, I think, a really interesting side. Because in some ways, and this may sound curious, but in some ways, what you've written here is a love story. Uh, and one of the central characters is Charlotte, uh, the wife of Michigan, and how they meet. Um, and the story sort of starts usually when history books treat the, uh, the Third Reich or the history of the Second World War. They begin in 1939 and end in 1945. But yours really includes the, the prehistory of that relationship and also of the history of Austria uh, from the late 1920s onwards, then through the horrors of the Second World War. And then, of course, with the, the coda, um, the, the red lines, which is really about how Wächter managed to escape justice uh, until his death in Rome in 1949. Um, so perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about these central characters and how they uh, relate to each other, particularly, of course, Otto and uh, Charlotte. I, I mean, I, I'm a lawyer, Robert, an academic lawyer who also does some practice. I don't present myself as a historian, so I, my historical method, I'm sure, can be open to critique. But I became fascinated by one central question, which I think many people are fascinated by. How could highly intelligent, highly educated, highly cultured human beings get involved in such horrors? I mean, Wächter in 1945, as the war comes to an end, is indicted for mass murder, more than 100,000. In fact, it's probably more than half a million Poles and Jews in Krakow and in Galicia and Lemberg. So The first question of interest for me was, okay, he did these things, but who was he? What allowed him to get to the point that he could do these things? And I had this archive, which the late wonderful historian Lisa Jardine said, you must go through the personal materials because you will learn things that are not in the public domain and which will give insights. So this couple, both in their 20s, met in 1929 on a, on a train um, in Vienna's central station, Westbahnhof. And in her diary that day, Charlotte notes that she has met the extraordinary uh, Baron Otto von Wächter. They court for three years. She becomes pregnant. And he is pulled kicking and screaming into a marriage. Uh, and marries her. And at this point, and indeed for the next dozen or so years, he 
pulls the strings, really. He is the powerful one in the relationship. There is a remarkable twist in 1945 when he's on the run, when her power increases dramatically and he's absolutely dependent on her. She comes from a very wealthy family. Her father is a steel magnate. Um, She comes from an anti-Semitic family, partly Protestant, partly Catholic, small town called Mützerschlag in Styria. The man she marries, Otto, is the son of a highly decorated Austrian, you know, general, uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire general, who serves as a minister of defense in governments in the 1920s, also well-to-do, military background, deeply nationalistic, deeply anti-Semitic. And Otto enters law school in October 1919. Interestingly, he enters law school on the same day that Hirsch Lauterpacht enters law school. Hirsch Lauterpacht will be the man who invents the concept of crimes against humanity. And 25 years later, it is Otto Wechter who will be involved in the killings of of his classmates' entire family. Two years after he enters law school, he gets involved in his first political brawls. He beats up Jews and throws stones through their windows of their shops and does a week in prison, joins the Nazi party in 23. One thing leads to another. One of the things I'm interested in is how people cross lines, the skies don't fall in on them, and then they enter a space and they cross another line. By 1934, he's leading the effort to kill the Austrian Chancellor Engelbert Dollfuss. He flees to Germany alone. He lives there for uh, four years and returns with Charlotte in 1938. And they stand with Hitler on the balcony of the Heldenplatz with um, a massive Austrian crowd. So they are top table Nazis. And then really the crucial thing happens that changes their lives. They leave the balcony of the Hofburg overlooking the Heldenplatz and they come down this huge marble staircase. I've traced it, I've walked down it. And at the bottom, as she records in her, her diaries, Otto asks her, my darling, what should I do? I've got a choice. I could I could carry on as a lawyer in private practice and would have a good and successful life and career and we would be wealthy and we would do well. Or our friend Arthur Seiss Ingvart, who is the new governor of Ostmark, the, the German-occupied Austria, uh, has offered me a job in the government. Take the job in government, says Charlotte. And that, for me, is the key. Not only will it... Um, caused tremendous damage to their children and their grandchildren. But it's the moment at which Charlotte's deep and complicit implication in the whole exercise, she knew everything all along, becomes so clear. And so what I was fascinated about, and in many respects, Charlotte is the beating heart of this book, is the role of the spouse. It could just as equally be a husband, but it's his wife. And that I'm fascinated by, because that's a story we don't know. You've written about Heydrich. I've often thought, for example, what was Mrs. Heydrich like? What was her role in all of this? And within six months of being appointed state secretary, he is uh, removing all Jews from public office. And that means from high office, from you know the ministries of justice, right down to postal workers. Anyone who's Jewish can no longer work in the public sector, out. And unbelievably, he removes from their jobs two of his own university professors, including the dean of his law faculty, who signed his graduation certificate. And both men within six months will be off to Theresienstadt and other places. And six months later, both will have perished. And what kind of human being does that? And what kind of spouse supports that kind of activity? That's the heart of of this book, in a sense. Well, I think it's an absolutely fascinating uh, story. And uh, there is actually an interesting parallel because um, Heidrich's wife, uh, Lena, was every bit as ideologically committed as he was. And in fact, uh, she had joined the party before him and convinced him uh, to apply for a job in intelligence, uh, which happened to be uh, the first post of the uh, SS security service. So he went for an interview uh, with uh, Himmler, who liked him very much and uh, employed him. And that started this sort of um, quite unique historical relationship. So I think there are strong parallels. Um, unfortunately, there weren't as many, I would say, um, letters available. And through these letters between them, I think you do a fantastic job in reconstructing that discourse about morality in the context of absolute evil. Um, 
unthinkable crimes are being committed. Yet at the same time, uh, you have these letter exchanges that um, are fascinating. Perhaps you can describe in some greater detail uh, how this unfolds. Well, the the letters are incredible. I mean, Charlotte is, is, I wouldn't say highly intellectual, but highly intelligent. And she has studied art and she becomes, in the late 20s, um, a designer of fabrics. And with this work, she travels across Europe. She loves coming to Britain. She loves the English because she thinks they're even more nationalistic than the Austrians uh, and the Germans. And she even comes to Dublin. She comes to Ireland. And she comes to an event in Phoenix Park in the mid-1930s to celebrate the 1500th anniversary, I think, of St. Patrick's arrival uh, in Ireland. And she loves Ireland. She loves the Anglo-Saxon world. And it is these tiny points of detail in, in the letters that are incredible. So to give you an example, before the real horrors begin, when they're on the path to horror, there's this moment in 1936, Otto's living in Berlin. Um, she's living in Vienna, Mürzerschlag in Vienna. And she finally gets herself to Berlin to move in with her husband. They have two children by then. And she discovers that her husband's having an affair with a young woman called Tauter. And Tauter is soon banished. And shortly after that, they have their third child, who happens to be a girl. And Charlotte accords to herself the power to decide on the new child's name, which will be Tauter. And she writes to Otto and says, that should teach you a lesson. And you get a sense in this, the dynamic between the couple. But as things move on, the letters, I mean, I, I mean, what, what Horst gave me, the son gave me, is about, about 10,000 pages. They wrote to each other constantly, pretty much, and no week passes when they're apart, but they don't write. And they both have diaries, which they fill in with lots of stuff. But they've been, I think, partly filleted, but not perfectly filleted. So, for example, December 1939, by now, Otto has moved even further up the greasy pole, appointed by Hitler to be the governor of Krakow, where he's busy persecuting, you know, political opponents, Jews, others who do things he doesn't like. And he writes letters home. Charlotte is, you know, in Vienna at this point. My darling, it's marvellous here. The Vienna Philharmonic uh, has been, and von Schirach and other ministers have come to visit. Tomorrow I have to have 50 poles shot. Uh, You know, and you pause and you think, my word, they put this stuff in the letters home. And, of course, once you see things like that, you realise you've got to go through every letter and every diary entry because there will be nuggets of horribleness in there. And that was a huge exercise. I had the wonderful assistance of some graduate students, PhD students in history and in law. But through the correspondence, as the great historian Lisa Jardine realised, you learn sort of the greater truth. Fast forward three more years. 1942, Otto's now in Lemberg, the Judenaktionen has begun, basically the, the murder of 100,000 Jews in the space of a few weeks. And Otto writes home to complain that um, uh, because of all the Poles have been sent off to uh, Germany as slave labour and the Jews have been sent elsewhere, evacuated, um, there's an absence of uh, powder for the tennis court and Jews to do the manual labour. You know, it's the mundanities of daily life. The point is, it tends to undermine the theory known as the banality of evil theory. Namely, they somehow mindlessly got into this. They knew exactly what they were doing. The husband knew what he was doing, and the wife knew what her husband was doing, and she totally supported it. And one of the most shocking aspects, really, of all of this material is that in eight and a half thousand pages, there is not a hint of regret. You know, I looked and I looked and I looked, and if it had been there, I would absolutely have put in not a word. I was actually going to um, ask you about her response to that letter in which she mentions that 50 uh, poets will be shot, because it seems to me that that is actually one of the central roles where the wives of key perpetrators sort of come into the equation. They basically uh, give them absolution and say, it's okay, what you're doing is, is all right. Um, it's justified because these are evil people. We find that in a lot of letters that are being sent to 
the front to task force commanders by wives and, and, and mothers who are, um, there is a sort of moral complicity, if you like, and I think that's, uh, that comes across very strongly uh, in your book. Um, I mean, we learn that from life, don't we? I, I, I don't know your, your own situation. I, I'm married, I have a, a, a wife, and very often, you know, when I face a dilemma of a personal nature or of a work matter, I will ask her. And, and sometimes she will direct me against the direction I would take. For example, because there's a third book coming in this series, one of the minor characters, Walter Hauf, ends up in Chile and becomes, it is said, uh, an interrogator and torturer in Pinochet's regime. And I was involved in the Pinochet case. When I was first contacted in the Pinochet case, I remember saying to my wife, oh, very interesting. Pinochet's lawyers have been in touch and um, and I've, oh, they want to instruct me to act for Pinochet in his defence. Remember when he was arrested in the English courts in 98? And she said, you act for Pinochet and I will divorce you. <laughs> and um, you need someone to speak truth to you at these critical moments. And I think what we see with both Hans and Brigitte Frank um, and Otto and Charlotte Werchter is that did not happen in those relationships. So there is a degree of complicity. And of course, Charlotte herself was a Nazi all the way through. I mean, Horst, the son, who I'm still very much in touch with, tends not to get too involved in those conversations. But on a couple of occasions when I was with him, his late wife, Jacqueline, who was Swedish and certainly not a Nazi, um, would come up to me and whisper in my ear, oh, Philippe, you need to understand about Charlotte. She was a, a true believing Nazi until the very day she died. And, um, and you find that in the materials, I'm afraid to say. And what does the, um, the grandson make of that relationship? Did you, did you ever talk about the mother as well as the father? Well, I mean, he's got 23 grandchildren. Otto's got 23 grandchildren. He has six... Otto and Schulter had six children and 23 grandchildren. Um, So I've come to know one of the children and some of the grandchildren. Um, The only male grandchild that I've come to know happens to be married to one of my students. Um, Life is odd and... uh, she invited me at one point for dinner with them in Vienna, knowing what, that I had written this article in the FT and written a, a, made a film. And um, in the course of the dinner, at a certain moment, the grandson left the table. And she said, Philippe, can I, can I just ask you a question? Could you? Yes, of course, I said. She said, could you make absolutely sure that this book and all your articles and things about the Vechter family are never published in Austria? And I said, well, no, of course not. I can't possibly do that. I'm a passionate, I'm president of English Pen now and passionate believer in freedom of expression and may the battle of ideas fight itself out wherever. I said, why do you ask? And she said, well, actually, it, it, it just, we have a child together, so the great-grandchild of the Wächters, and it would cause tremendous damage to our, grand, to our daughter to have the name of Wächter back in the spotlight. Now, to wind back slightly... Horst Wächter, the son who's given me all this material, has, of course, paid a very big price um, because most of his family has cut him off for shining the spotlight um, of uh, all of these things on um, his two parents. Now, Horst is not like Nicholas, and this is where the complexities really emerge. Unlike Nicholas Frank, who hates his father, Horst loves his mother and deeply reveres his father and has spent 10 years trying to persuade me what a great bloke Otto Wächter was and is not happy with my take uh, or my interpretations. I don't want to give away too much here, but he has one child and the last line of the book has caused Horst to disinherit his daughter, the granddaughter. My confusion was you focused on the grandson. The one I've come to know best is one of the granddaughters of the Vechters. So the complexities of these matters and the fight within the family as to what Otto did and did not do and what Charlotte did and did not support continues two generations or even three generations later. And this is the complexity of these big historical events. 
that was actually what I was trying to to get at, indeed, right. uh, because the sons are much closer, of course. They knew, yeah, they knew their fathers, um, whereas for the grandchildren, they're sort of ones yeah. removed. And I was wondering what they're making out of this uh, whole complex history. I mean, immensely complex. Um, to, to fill the story in a little bit more, to explain for those who won't have read the book. So the book really is in two parts. The first part is what the Vechters did up until 1945, the first 15 years of their relationship. The second part of the book is concerned with what happened in the next five years. On the 8th of May, 1945, Otto Vechter, indicted for mass murder, genocide, crimes against humanity, disappears off the face of the earth, literally disappears. And he turns up four and a half years later in the summer of 1949 in Rome in a Vatican hospital dead. And so I became interested in the question of what on earth happened to Otto Wächter in this period. And all of that is in the book. In short, he fled. He hid with a young Waffen-SS soldier called Buko Ratman to the Austrian mountains for three and a half years. Ratman was a mountain partisan killer who knew how to survive in high-altitude places. And he told Werchter, above 2,000 metres, the British and the Americans, the Soviets and the Jews and the Poles are too stupid and lazy to hunt for us. We will be safe. So for three years, they live above 2,000 metres. And I've, I've followed the trail. It's, it's an incredible story of survival. And every two or three weeks, Charlotte would go and bring supplies, food, you know, clothing, other bits and bobs, newspapers. He was interested in sport and the football results, unbelievably. Interested in the Nuremberg trial, which they were following from a distance atop an Austrian, you know, high up in an Austrian mountain. I even met Buko Hatzman because unbelievably in 2016, he was still alive. And so I could get a first-hand account of what being on the run meant. He then comes down from the mountain, ends up in Rome, hopes to get to Argentina on this thing called the Rat Line, but dies in mysterious circumstances under the protection of a Vatican bishop, Alois Hudal. What happens next is that Charlotte will devote the rest of her life to protecting the reputation of her husband. I mean, you literally could not invent it. Not only does she do that, but she will exhume and rebury him on five occasions, including illicitly and illegally taking his corpse from the uh, Catholic cemetery in Rome, where he is buried, back to her home in Salzburg, House Wartenberg, a small pension which she has turned into a German language school. It is now run by uh, one of her grandchildren. And that grandchild reached out to me just a few months ago as he became aware that the book was going to come out and didn't ask that it not be published in Austria, but instead asked me to, um, he, he, he asked me to publicly pardon his grandfather. And I declined to do this, but I did say, look, what I'm willing to do is take a trip with you to Rome to the Vatican. I've met someone there, a remarkable Irish bishop, who I like and trust very much. Let's have a conversation with him about all this and see how we can take matters forward. The Irish bishop, I should mention, marvellous Paul Tige, Bishop Tige. Um, I came to know him in a roundabout way. After the article and after the film, I made a podcast. Horse didn't like that either. Broke relations again, but then came back once more. And Paul Tigo, the Irish bishop, who lives still now in Rome, works in the Vatican, uh, heard the podcast. In fact, you people watching this program, it's on the BBC website. It's free to listen to. It's a 10-part series called The Rat Line. It, it is, it's, it's in conjunction with the book. Uh, bishop Tigo said to a Spanish writer friend of mine, Sands, Philippe Sands, didn't he do that podcast? Not very complimentary about the Vatican, but I loved it. And I'd like to meet Sands. And so I went down to Rome and I got into the secret archives and I was introduced to all sorts of people. And in this way, I've come to understand the pain 
for the grandson and many of the grandchildren of the past. And what silence does, the nefarious effects of silence, things that were never talked about, come back to haunt. Silence does not make things go away. It buries them and they reappear a generation or two later. This is one, I think, of the big lessons of that period and of my own researchers. For those of our uh, listeners who um, are not entirely familiar with the concept of, of the red line and where these red lines led, um, perhaps you could explain a little bit what exactly uh, the role of certain people in the Vatican, uh, what the role was, and particularly uh, Bishop Huda, who I actually think is one of the uh, most sinister uh, figures, characters in, uh, in your storyline. I mean, the possibly for, for me, apart from Shorter, the most interesting aspect of all of this is what happens when Vechter gets to Rome. This was an amazingly time-consuming work. You're a wonderful historian, Robert. You, you know how long archival work takes. So imagine that for the period April to July 1949, we had about well over a thousand pages of letters, well, I mean, thousands of pages of diary entries um, and other documents relating to that period, all in German, most of it handwritten, very badly handwritten. All of it had to be digitized, had to be transcribed into typewritten text and then translated into English so that more and more of us could understand it. My German is, I'm afraid, not good enough. I can sort of get by. But the crucial thing was all of the letters that passed between Otto and Charlotta in that period were in code. So there are no names mentioned. So, for example, in the diary on the 29th of April 1949, the day he arrives in Rome, there is an entry at 3 p.m. It just says E-X-C-E-L-L, Excel, Excellencia. Okay, now already from that word, you can understand this is probably or could be a Vatican figure, possibly a bishop. In the letters to Charlotta, he writes only about that day, the 29th of April, yesterday I met the religious gentleman. As soon as he knew who I was, he said, of course, he would help me in any ways. And that religious gentleman then parks him in a monastery, the Vigna Pia, gets him some papers, starts getting him travel documents, nourishes him, looks after him, but but we don't know who this person is. And we have to spend months uncovering the identity. We've now uncovered with absolute certainty every critical character. And this is where the story becomes really, literally unbelievable to me, who is not a historian or expert in this. So we discover that Wächter has entered Rome at a moment in which the Cold War is raging. And he has fallen into a network of spies. And the network of spies comprises a, all run by an American, the former CIA, who has hired a former Nazi, whose name I won't give you now, because I don't want to give it all away, because it is a bit of a detective thriller. And that Nazi has eight sub-agents working for him and for the Americans. And those eight sub-agents comprise... Three Italian fascists, three Nazis of a very senior level, and two senior Vatican officials. And it turns out the man who greeted Otto Wächter, the Austrian bishop Alois Hudal, was an American spy who basically, you know, was in a position to report on new arrivals as they entered Rome. But even more extraordinary was the other Vatican official who was none other than a cardinal who was the chief press spokesperson of Pope Pius XII. And that, of course, raises the question, if this well-known bishop and cardinal, who is the Pope's press spokesperson, are working for the Americans, did the Pope know about all of this? Of course, I, I don't have an answer to that question. The archives have been opened this year on the 2nd of March. Time will tell. And I express no view one way or the other as to the involvement of other people. But the point is that Werther stumbled into a remarkable and shady set of operations. Now, I had to get 
some answers to questions that I had. And I didn't know about the world of espionage. I have the great, I have many great fortunes in my life, but one of them is that my neighbor happens to be a writer of spy books and was a spy himself. His name is David Cornwall, but he writes under the name John Le Carre. So I went to see him. I, I called him up and I said, David, I've stumbled into your area. Will you help me? I need your help. He said, yes, of course. Bring some cakes, I'll make you tea, and send me a few documents in advance about the Vechters, which I did. I went with some cakes, sat with him, and it was astonishing. The first thing Le Carre said to me was, this is amazing, Philippe, I was there in Austria in 1949. I said, what do you mean? He said, he said I was 18 years old, I was a British soldier, and my job was to question and interview Nazis who were in the camps. And I said, for what purpose? To prosecute them? He said, no, not at all. The opposite, to recruit them in the new struggle against the Soviets, against the communists. He said it was very discombobulating. He said, I had to turn on a sixpence. I'd been told for my whole life that the Nazis were the worst of the worst. And now my superiors were telling me not at all, they are our friends. And we're going to work with them against the new enemy. That's 1949. So it teaches you this story about the reality of the world, which is, I think, no different from the reality of the world today, but not a nice place in, in, in many respects. Not at all. But now we all know why the last, uh, the second half of the book reads like a thriller, uh, clearly the influence of your... Uh, you do. I have great, great help from my neighbour. <laughs> Um, but do you know why Vechta did not end up in Argentina, which would have been the most popular uh, destination for Nazis on the run? Well, um, we, we do sort of. We do sort of. Because on the 2nd and 3rd of July 1949, as he dutifully recounted to his wife in one of the many letters he sent her, he went off to visit an old comrade. Incidentally, you will know this, but the viewers and listeners won't. Whenever you see a reference to an old comrade in these kinds of documents, it usually means a former senior SS officer. And that's who it was. He went to see an old comrade. I'm not going to mention his name because that's part of the thriller bit of the second part of the book. And he spent a wonderful weekend with the old comrade. And the old comrade, as he wrote to Charlotta, came with a young Italian wife and a six-week-old child. And in identifying the old comrade... We were able to do that finally by going through all the records in Italy in that region and finding a German who'd married an Italian who had a six-week-old child. And it was through the six-week-old child that we identified the identity. This place is Lake Albano, better known as the location of a place called Castel Gandolfo, which many of your viewers and listeners will know about, the summer home of the Pope. Something happened that weekend. Vesta went back to Rome, took a bus. He's completely impecunious uh, and living in real near poverty. Um, although he's making a bit of money on the sides, remarkably, by getting film parts as an extra in films being made in Chinchita. And we found some of those films with help from more fantastic Italian researchers. Couldn't invent this. Gets back to Rome and forms deliriously ill. And so much so that a week later, he's dead. And the question is, did he uh, die by getting ill, picking up a virus while swimming, possibly leptospirosis? Or, as Horst believes, the son believes, was he poisoned? Was he poisoned by the Americans, the British or the Soviets, or even the Jews? And Horst has a theory that he was personally poisoned by Simon Wiesenthal, the famous Nazi hunter, because Wiesenthal believes Wächter was responsible for the deportation of Wiesenthal's mother. So the second part of the second half of the book is an investigation of the cause of Otto Wächter's death, uh, which... I found that part absolutely fascinating because I, uh, I think he worked with a medical expert to uh, essentially resolve that mystery um, now, whether you want to resolve it here and now or leave the suspense <laughs> is entirely up to you. Well, I've come to my resolution. Um, readers will come to their own. I get about four or five letters a week since the book has come out from medical experts from around the world with their own theories about what happened. We had very little. At one point, 
Horse said, let's, let's exhume my father. This would be the fifth exhumation, because you'll see in the book, the mad acts of burial of Otto Wächter, including his final burial in 1974. By now, he'd been buried four times in different places. Charlotta, who was quite a lady, recorded the burial. And amongst the archive is the actual recording of the fifth, actually, it's the fourth burial of Otto Wächter, with the priest going through the whole ceremony and thunder and lightning in the background. I mean, it's absolutely um, uh, astonishing uh, material. Um, And you, you know, get through to this material um, and we did not have a body in the end. We had a few hospital records. We had the details from his letters in which he set out his symptoms. And it's really fascinating to work with high-end medics in the US, in Britain, in Germany, interpreting the symptoms described in scraps of medical records and in a patient's letters home. And on the basis of those, I think we've been able to work out pretty conclusively what happened. Uh, We also uh, got um, expertise from forensic experts. If we could exhume him, what would we be able to find? And I've included that in um, the material, and it's a little bit ghoulish, not very, um, but that was completely fascinating. I learned all about crunchy bones and hard bones and how poison enters those bones or does not. It was a fascinating journey, I have to say. I can imagine. Now, we've got plenty of questions from the audience, but uh, before I move to them, just one final question from me. Are you planning a third book? Is this going to become a trilogy? And if yes, uh, which character are you going to pick? As it the- is, it is, and I've already said it publicly. The, the character, well, I'm not so very much, but the character is Walter Rauf. Um, Walter Rauf was one of Otto's comrades. Mm-hmm. He occupied the monk's cell at the Vigna Pia Monastery immediately before Otto arrived in April 1949. And he left not on the rat line to Argentina, but on the rat line to Syria. And he writes to Otto in May 1949, a long letter which we have, telling him that Syria is not a place for Germans or Austrians. It's very disorganized, unkempt sort of place. And he's better off going to South Africa or South America. Ralph, in the end, in 1955, arrives in Chile. And he sets up as a small businessman in Punta uh, Arenas. He, I should mention, was not only a senior SS officer, but he is the man who invented the mobile gas chamber. And he would have worked closely with one of the people you've written about, Heydrich. Um, uh, they were, I think, very closely connected. He lives in Chile until 73. And then in 73, Pinochet takes power. And he starts, it is said, working with Pinochet. In 73, he is said to have interrogated a young Chilean writer who 15 years later, writes an affidavit about the torture he was subjected to at the hands of Walter Hauf, Otto's comrade. And that affidavit becomes part of the dossier that lands on my desk in October 1998, when I'm retained to act in the Pinochet proceedings in London. Viewers and listeners, and you, Robert, will remember, Senator Pinochet was getting medical treatment in London in October 1998, when he was arrested for crimes against humanity and genocide. We're back to the subject of East West Street. And there were six months of extraordinary proceedings in the House of Lords, as it then was, uh, which I was involved in. So I will tell the story of Ralph and the case before the House of Lords. Um, And there are strange moments in all of this. In 1945, Walter Ralph was being hunted by the United States Army's counterintelligence corps. And the hunt was being led by a young newly naturalized American, formerly German, called Henry Kissinger. 28 years later, Henry Kissinger will be the one who persuades Richard Nixon to and Gerald Ford to support the uh, tenure of Augusto Pinochet, for whom it is said 
Ralf was working. So again, we come back yes. to the... All looking forward to reading that uh, the new book. Um, will probably be... Four years. Four years it will be. Excellent. <laughs> but we will definitely have you back then. Let's turn to the questions that we got from uh, many of our listeners. And one is about the reception uh, of the book uh, in Austria, and in particular, whether uh, Horst ever accepted your findings. Have you reconciled? You mentioned that there was a breakdown of communications for a while. Um, the book has not yet come out uh, in um in, in Austria or Germany, it comes out on the 20th of November. Okay. And that date, as you will know, Robert, and some of the listeners and viewers will know, happens to be the 75th anniversary of the opening day of the Nuremberg trial, the 20th of November, 1945. And I will be in the courtroom on that date to launch the American edition in the presence. It's very touching for me, given my own family background, because... One thing that needs to be said for those who are not aware is that Wächter not only was responsible for the killing of um, the Lauterpachs and hundreds of thousands of others, but amongst those people was my grandfather's entire family. Uh, all of his cousins and nephews and uncles and aunts and parents, his mother at least, his father had passed away some time before, were killed under the regime of Wächter. So it's very personal. And Horst has always been very decent about that, but I will be in the presence of the president of Germany, President Steinmeier, on that day, and we will talk together about the legacy of all of this. So given my family background, this is, for me, a very special day. There is a lot of interest. I will spend three days in Vienna alone doing back-to-back -back events at the Freud Museum, at the Austrian Radio uh, Theatre. Um, Horst will certainly be there. He, I always invite him on the stage. I always like to give him an opportunity to say his bit, to say why he disagrees. No, he has not reconciled. But as I've indicated already, the family is divided. And his own daughter has adopted a different approach, and that has caused uh, tremendous difficulties. I did an event last October to mark the 100th anniversary of the arrival of Otto Wächter at the University of Vienna Law School, and also that of Hirsch Lauterpach. And hundreds of people came to that. And in the audience, in camera, so to speak, were many members of the Wächter family, although I didn't recognise them. Others told me they were there. Another question here is in relation to the ongoing trials and prosecution of Nazis. So uh, in a way, uh, speaking to both the historian and the international uh, lawyer, uh, how you feel about the continued uh, prosecution of Nazis. And obviously, this is a period... Uh, that is coming to an end now, as many of these people will be in their late 90s. I have very mixed feelings about this, to be honest. Um, I can quite see why, from the perspective of the victims who are still alive, finding a man in his 90s who was a camp guard at one of the camps overseeing, or not even overseeing, but just doing his job, whatever it may have been, justice requires that those people be proceeded against. But I've seen some of these trials. I've seen some of the individuals. And I have to say, I ask myself the question, what is the utility? Is it a, is it a deterrent effect? Is it, is it about punishment? It really raises the question about what is justice for? I've come to the view, in a sense, that what justice in part is about is telling stories. Like a historian, a trial is a way of offering a narrative with a reasonable authority. And if a trial can help offer insights and a narrative that will reach a broader audience, that may be a justification. But I would be lying to you if I did not say I had certain qualms about these very elderly folk who often did, you know, low-grade things and were not, perpetrators in an active sense, it raises for me serious questions. I have here a, um, a personal question. You don't have to answer it. But no. Whether your um, surviving family uh, from Lemberg um, managed to escape with the help of an escape network or whether that was before um, uh, that period? 
That's a very touching question for me for the following reason. Um, I, I, when I wrote East West Street, but East West Street came out in 2016 and I understood that there were no survivors from Lemberg and that my grandfather had lost his entire family, all 80 plus members of his family had perished. And then about a year after the East West Street came out, I received a letter from Los Angeles from a professor of engineering at the University of California at Los Angeles. Dear Professor Sands, I read your book with great interest and was astonished at page 17 to see a reference to um, my grandfather. And um, he proceeded to describe that my um, grandfather's first cousin had survived in Lemberg uh, and had spent the rest of his life looking for any other survivor from the family, that's to say my grandfather, but had never found him and had died before that had happened. I've come to know now this professor of engineering, Henrik Flaschner, a wonderful human being, um, and we've become friends beyond the fact that he's distant family. Um, we've become friends. And that was very touching for me. So there were, there were a few networks. There's one small chapter in the book that concerns a remarkable man called Michael Katz, who's now in his 90s, a professor of pediatrics at a major teaching hospital in New York, who did survive, did get out, got a fake Polish identity. And I wanted to put his story in there to show that there is a crack, there is some light. Some people did manage to escape. Yeah, I think it is actually very much that personal angle to the story that you're telling, which makes it so, yeah. so extremely um, powerful, I think, both books, um, that it's kind of um, interwoven into the general um, narrative. Um, I have another question here about the origins of Otto's anti-Semitism. Do we know... Um, like many other academics, particularly in Austria, where, of course, the SS was, um, Austrians were highly overrepresented in the SS. I can imagine that he sort of came across anti-Semitism initially in his university years, or was he an anti-Semite before then? I think in his case, the anti-Semitism came from his father, uh, who was a member of an entity called the Deutsche Club, Uh, on which there's actually a rather wonderful book now coming out with three very fine Austrian historians, which tells the story of how the Deutsche Club was the sort of central meeting point for illicit Austrian Nazis. As you know, from the mid-1930s, the Nazi party was banned by Dolphus um, and Schuschnigg, uh, successive chancellors. And so they were meeting in secret. And the Deutsche Club was the central point. And Otto's father was very active in the Deutsche Club. And if you go into the Deutsche Club magazines, you'll see they're deeply anti-Semitic and pro-Aryan and so on and so forth. I mean, I think you have to put it in the context of the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Austria being turned into a tiny little rump state, and all of these people, Ostjuden, Eastern Jews, flooding into Austria from Galicia. People like my grandfather, who arrived in Vienna in 1914, in the context of the war as a kid, as a 10-year-old kid, they just didn't like it. And the more interesting question is someone like Charlotta, um, who was also very obviously anti-Semitic, although she liked to flirt with Jews on trains, as her diaries made clear. Um, she came from a tiny town, Mürzuschlag, where there were sort of like three Jews and their life was fine. I think in her case... It was the teachings of the church. I very much regret to say, um, I think there's plenty of evidence that the family bishop, Pavlikovsky, um, who they were very close to, and who is probably the man who introduced Otto Wächter to Alois Hudal and safety in 1949 in Rome, uh, should we say, had a certain anti-Semitic tendency, um, which I think was not unusual in that period. But But I don't have a closed mind on this. I, I haven't been able to get absolute certainty. And I, I've raised this more as a question and a series of speculations because, and this is the courtroom lawyer speaking, I really 
and very careful not to reach conclusions. The style of the book, Like East West Street, is my job is to lay out the material, not to impose conclusions on the reader who is intelligent, and the reader will form her or his own view as to their own view as to what this material does and doesn't mean. And I think that style is very important for me. I'm very much informed by matters of proof. And if you don't know, say you don't know and don't make claims you can't support. That's that's really important. That goes, for example, to I've been asked a lot in interviews, did Pius XII know about the rat line? Was he involved? Did he support it? And the simple answer is, I don't know. Um, I think it is unlikely that he knew nothing and it's unlikely that he gave no support and I've given evidence for that. But the truth is, I can't say with absolute certainty It's an unknown area. More will become available when the archive, which Pope Francis has, I think, very courageously opened up uh, from 2nd of March this year, becomes available. But that exercise will take years and years and years. And anyone who reads articles saying, oh, they've discovered the Pope was, you know, involved in the destruction of the Jews, or the Pope was not, and he helped the Jews, I think the jury's out. It's just just too early, and we're not going to know for many years. I know that unfortunately we're running out of time, but I'm going to ask you one more question. Um, and before that, I also want to thank you for being so engaging and, and trying to answer so many questions. There are loads more here in my uh, checkbox, but unfortunately we can't answer all of them. Um, but what happened to Charlotte in the end? We know that she dies in 1985, which I think is incidentally the same year that uh, Lena Heydrich uh, dies. Um, mm. But what did she do in the meantime between 1949 and 1985. Does she distance herself from her life with Otto, or is she becoming the guardian of his legacy? Is she visible in public? She devoted the rest of her life to elevating the reputation of her husband. It's, it, 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 in, a, it, in a curious way, it's rather moving and touching, even though it is rather nefarious. But her daily life, fascinatingly enough, which I've already touched on, was that she ran this German language school, Haus Wartenberg. It's still open today, not as a German language school, but as a pension. It's in Salzburg. I have visited. And anyone who's watching and listening, if you're in Salzburg, go and take a look at it. And I've had an extraordinary series of letters and emails from some of her former pupils in the 60s, in the 70s. Some were priests. Wonderful letter from a priest in St. Louis in the United States. Um, And they all say the same thing. They loved the Baroness, as she liked to call herself, or Tante Lottie. They knew nothing about her family background. I got a few weeks ago when the book came out, a letter from a retired major general in Britain who had not read the book, but had read a review of the book in the Daily Telegraph, which lauded the book and painted a less than rosy picture of Charlotte Wechter. And he wrote to me to say that my book on the basis of the review was an outrage. He had been a pupil of Tantilotti's in the 60s. She was a wonderful lady, decent, warm, humane. And she had personally assured him that her husband had been a minor military figure in some outpost not involved in any of the horrors. And it's actually rather touching to imagine her with her pupils um, reconstituting, recharacterizing her life in a public way, but privately doing all she could to, you know, remake her husband and burnish his memory. It's, you know, this is the trouble with this story. At the end of the day, it is a story of love. It's the horse's love to his mother. I don't think a horse loves his father. He loves his mother. And because the mother loves the father, he tries also to elevate the mother and take forward the mother's work. It's also the story of the love of a wife for her husband. The fact that the husband did absolutely dastardly things um, is obviously pretty significant, but it's possible to look at this 
book in a number of different ways. And it is about, as the title puts it, it's about love and lies and justice. And that's the complexity of human life. Things are not always absolutely black and white. It's complex, as you know so well, Robert. Well, you've written a brilliant book about it. And for those uh, in the audience who haven't had the opportunity to read it, I would uh, strongly recommend it in connection with Philippe's first book. I think uh, they obviously go together. And as we have just heard, there's a third one uh, on the way. But you can read them in any order. They're not dependent. You can read them in any order, although I think you should start with East West Street and then work your way uh, to the red line because um, the red line takes the story further uh, in some ways and it sort of opens up a different set of questions. And I think uh, in order to understand some of the the key issues here, uh, one needs to understand these concepts of genocide and crimes against uh, humanity, uh, which, of course, evolve in response to uh, the horrors of the Holocaust. Uh, So thanks uh, for... Uh, your attention, everyone. Uh, it's been absolutely wonderful to uh, talk to you, Philippe. Robert, thank you so much. I was due to be at Boris and, you know, at other festivals, and I really hope very soon, and I hope everyone is well in this very difficult period of COVID and that everyone in Dublin and in Ireland is doing well. It's it's an, an awfully difficult period, but we will get over it, and I'm really looking forward to being back in Dublin and in Ireland. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest.